Welcome to Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. In the first season of the popular TV show 24, Jack Bauer is a federal agent charged with protecting a, pres a presidential candidate from an assassination plot. He was given that responsibility because in the uncertain world of espionage, he possesses that rare character trait called integrity. In the first episode, Jack is already being put to the test. Because he turned in other federal agents for bribery, some of his own comrades have turned against him. In particular, Jack's immediate boss has come down hard on him and tried to persuade Jack to not be so honest on his job. Jack has an explosive confrontation with his boss, but will not budge. Just after that confrontation, Jack bristles with intensity as he explains his actions to his closest partner. He says, you can look away once, and it's no big deal except it makes it easier for you to compromise the next time. And pretty soon that's all that you're doing, compromising. Well, that's how you think things are done. You know those guys I blew the whistle on? You think they were the bad guys? They weren't the bad guys. They were just like you and me, except they compromised one time. I believe if Solomon were sitting among us this morning, you would have heard an amen from wherever he was sitting. Because this morning, we will look at one of the many compromises that will eventually be the downfall of, apart from Jesus, was the wisest man who ever lived. Look at verse 1 with me. Now Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David. Excuse me about this until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. What are we to make of the fact that the very first thing we are told about Solomon's reign, once it was established, is that he became the son-in-law of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. His father David had risked his life on the battlefield to defeat enemies and claim their lands, but... Solomon took a different approach to international diplomacy. He made treaties with other rulers by marrying their daughters, which helps to explain why he had 700 wives as well as 300 concubines. It appears that Solomon entered into treaty arrangements with every petty ruler who had a marriageable daughter. Yet Moses in the law warned Jewish kings not to multiply wives. Now why would God say that? You see, the Lord placed Israel among the Gentile nations to be a witness to them of the true and living God as a light to the Gentiles. And if Israel had continued to be faithful to the terms of God's covenant, the Lord could have blessed them and used them as an object lesson to the pagan nations around them. Instead, Israel imitated the Gentiles, worshipped their idols, and abandoned the witness to the true God. For that reason, God had to chasten them and send them into captivity into Babylon. Solomon not only violated the law of Moses, not only by marrying many wives, 
but also by multiplying horses and depending on chariots. What's even more bizarre, though, is contrary to God's command, Solomon went back to Egypt for both of these things. And it's not like Solomon wasn't aware of these prohibitive commands. Did you know the king was required to copy by hand the entire book of Deuteronomy? I have to wonder how Solomon responded when he read that command about not having many wives and horses. I wonder if he did like some people and just read over those parts of the Bible and assume those commands don't apply to us. What do you mean I have to esteem others better than myself? You have to look out for number one today. What do you mean I have to forgive that person? You don't know what they did to me. What do you mean marriage is only between a man and a woman? Get with the times, you Neanderthal. My friends, we just can't pick and choose what we want to obey. This is God the King, not Burger King. <laughs> and we're going to see that during Solomon's reign, the outward splendor and wealth of Israel only mass an inner decay that will eventually lead to division and then destruction. 1 Kings 2.46 says, So the kingdom was now firmly in Solomon's grip. A few verses later, we're going to be told that Solomon loved the Lord and followed all the instructions of his father David. We're also going to be told that he went to Gibeon and offered up a thousand sacrifices. Solomon's first day in office seems to be a roaring success, except for one thing. You might miss it if you're not paying close attention. Right in the middle of all this glowing information about the young king, we find these words. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and married one of his daughters. Only 16 words, but they speak volumes. They tell us that the seduction of Solomon is officially underway. You see, God's law strictly forbade all Israelites, whether peasants or kings, from marrying foreign women. Deuteronomy 7.3 says, You must not intermarry with them. Do not let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters. Why? For they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. Then God names these foreigners. They are the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Skintites, and the Bud Lights. <laughs> I made up those last two, but I still think it's pretty accurate. Now, I do need to say here that marriage to an Egyptian princess did not technically violate the letter of the biblical command, but it was still unwise as it was threatening the uniqueness of God's people. It will also become clear that Solomon married this woman without requiring her to become a worshiper of the true God. And the very fact that at one time Pharaoh had enslaved God's people, that should have been a tip-off to never again get involved with them. Why would you ever want to go back to Egypt, as it were? Then why do we do that sometimes? Sometimes. 
Why would we ever go back to the place where we were held in bondage of whatever sinful pleasure that we tried to put in the place of God to find fulfillment in life? It didn't satisfy us back then. And so why would we think that somehow it would satisfy us now? There is a reason we turn from our life of sin to the Savior because the old way can never satisfy us. The theme song for the first 22 years of my life could have been, I can't get no satisfaction. No, 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 hey, 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 that's what I say. More particularly, we'll see that Egypt has an influence on Solomon's kingdom and played a role in its demise and eventually did great damage. Going back to Egypt may or may not have been a good political decision, but it was certainly a terrible decision spiritually. For although the Bible will later give Egypt promises for their future salvation, the Egyptians have always been enemies to the people of God. So I have to wonder, did all of this begin with Solomon becoming son-in-law of Pharaoh, king of Egypt? But as I just said, perhaps most puzzling of all is we're going to be repeatedly reminded in the following pages that the notion of which Solomon now the nation of which Solomon now reigned had been rescued out of the hand of Egypt. One commentator writes. If the account of Solomon's reign begins with this reference to his new association with Egypt, of all places, does this suggest a return, in some sense, to the one from whom they had been redeemed? Further complications are going to be associated with Solomon's building projects, and it was the problem of priorities. In due course, we're going to learn that Solomon spent 13 years building his own house, while building the house of the Lord took just seven years. I have to wonder, is there a sense of confused priorities in the mention of his own house before the house of the Lord there in verse 1? And we're going to find out that Solomon's building projects were lavish and very, very expensive. He used forced labor, and the burden of this sowed the seeds of discontent that is going to eventually lead to the division of the kingdom after Solomon's death in chapter 12. Really, if I'm honest, Solomon is an enigma to me. Solomon is a puzzling man, as we're going to discover. He accomplished great good and lived a life marked by great achievements. But the outcome of his life was tragic. He was a wise man who did some foolish things. He was a godly man who did some ungodly things. He was just like us. After only a short time in power, it was evident that he had the courage to lead. He had established his kingdom by eliminating all of his enemies. He was political savvy, a man of action. But what kind of person was he on the inside, in the spiritual life of his soul? The Bible says Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. This is really about the highest praise that any person could be, could be given. Solomon's heart was full of holy affection for the living God. 
He adored the Lord and responded emotionally. He felt a deep spiritual longing in his soul and a passionate yearning for a closer relationship with God. But as much as he loved the Lord, there are some ominous warning signs that Solomon's love was not wholehearted. The traditional view of 1 Kings is that he was a king and he was faithful until the later years of his life. On this interpretation, chapters 1 through 10 give an almost entirely positive view of his kingship, while chapter 11 shows us how he turned away from the Lord at the very end. But I think if we study his life more carefully, we're going to see signs of his eventual downfall especially in his love for money, sex, and power. The first warning sign is here in chapter 3. It's Solomon's choice of a life partner where we read, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the walls around Jerusalem. This union was problematic in many different ways. Since we have no reason to think that Pharaoh's daughter had faith in the God of Israel, we can only conclude that Solomon was unequally yoked. Now this is not an issue of ethnicity, but of spirituality. The Bible fully supports the union of two people from different ethnic backgrounds, but it condemns a marriage of a believer to an unbeliever. So it's hardly surprising that marrying outside the faith eventually led Solomon into idolatry. But think about the dichotomy of that. The very king who was said to have loved the Lord later is to be said that he loved many foreign women and by extension their gods. His poor example is a warning to all Christians not to pursue a romantic relationship with anyone unless they are fully committed to Christ. As Matthew Henry comments, unequal matches of the sons of God with the daughters of men have often been of pernicious consequence. Honey, you don't want to be part of a marriage that has the words pernicious consequence in it. Another problem with this marriage is that it formed an unholy alliance with Egypt of all places. In those days, a royal marriage was intended to secure a military and political alliance. By marrying Pharaoh's daughter, Solomon was trying to help Israel become a player on the stage of international politics. He was seduced by power as well as by sex. But the Bible takes a dim view of this kind of power play, which was often a temptation for Israel. God wanted his people to trust in him alone for their salvation, rather than trying to find their security by aligning themselves with foreign powers. By becoming Pharaoh's son-in-law, Solomon was turning to Egypt, a nation that had been the antithesis of everything Israelite. And so don't think for a second that Solomon didn't know this law. It would have been drilled into him since he was young. Yet somehow, taking a foreign wife still seemed like a great idea. Come on, Pastor Bill. Maybe he was lonely and just needed a companion. But get this. Solomon already had at least one foreign wife, not yet mentioned in our narrative. It was Naamah the Ammonite, the mother of Rehoboam. 
And he is going to soon spiral out of control, marrying many different women. One of the big problems with using moderation as a justification for whatever you want to do is it's almost impossible to take just a bite when you're really hungry. Solomon, for example, was obviously hungry for power and influence on the world stage. So one treaty with one foreign wife was never going to be enough. One good bite or treaty led to another and another and another until he ended up with a thousand women in his harem. It was seen that Solomon on occasion lacked discernment. What is discernment? Discernment is simply the ability to see beyond the lipstick. It's the ability to look at a person, a path, a proposition, and see it for what it really is, regardless of how much someone has tried to pretty it up. If you look at that word up in your Bibles, you'll find only a handful of references, and maybe get the idea that God doesn't say very much about discernment. But if you understand that the words wisdom, understanding, and good judgment are interchangeable with discernment, you realize that the Bible is chock full of insights and exhortations on this subject. The book of Proverbs, which ironically was written mostly by our boy Solomon, is about discernment from start to finish. And granted, if you never picked up a Bible from the day you were born until the day you died, you still gain a certain amount of discernment. This fallen world will plant the toe of its boot squarely upon your hindquarters from time to time, and you will learn some valuable lessons. But thankfully, God offers a less painful way to gain discernment. Proverbs 2.6 says, the Lord grants wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. If you get into the word and you soak up God's wisdom, you may still feel that pesky boot from time to time, but those occasions will most certainly be fewer in number and a whole lot less painful. Proverbs 28:26 says, Anyone who walks in wisdom is safe. That tells us that if we walk in wisdom, we're going to be safe. Not pain-free, but safe. Solomon is the perfect example of the fact that you can have your cranium crammed full of discernment and still end up at the end embarrassing yourself. Once again, keep in mind, he not only knew the book of Proverbs, he wrote the vast majority of it. And then he ended up doing many of the very things that he said were foolish. The lesson here is that the sermon doesn't work like central air conditioning. You just can't set your wisdom thermostat at a certain level and then forget about it, trusting it to turn off and on as needed. No, you have to know your Bible and then apply those truths to your particular situation. There's a lot of psychology in this world that tries to explain people's behavior. But the Bible cuts through all of that yammering and nails the central issue. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. 
Now, obviously, the heart in that verse is not the blood pumping organ in your chest. It refers to that, that inner you, that place where your will, emotion, and intellect come together to form a little thing that we call passion. Every person on this earth is ultimately driven by their passion. Hence the warning. It determines the course of your life. Think of that log flume ride at your favorite amusement park. You settle down to the log thingy and away you go, gliding through on a steady stream of moving water. Up, over, and around you float with a dip here and a drop there till you finally come to the grand finale, a dive and a splashdown that is intended to leave you soaking wet. You may have never thought about this before, but the course of your life is just as predictable as the path of an amusement park thrill ride. I hear people talking all the time about not knowing what life will bring, and in specific events that's true. But in terms of a general direction, that is not true. The message of Proverbs 4.23 is that whatever in your heart creates a trough that you must follow. That's right. Must follow. Whatever your will, emotion, and intellect agree on becomes your passion, and that is going to be the one thing that you pursue. So when you see a guy choosing sin management over repentance, you know that that sin, or the way it makes him feel, has become the dominant passion of his heart. And you know what they say, you can't have too much of a good thing. So if one peace treaty accompanied by a foreign wife let's fed Solomon's passion, then two would satisfy it even more. And if two, then three. And so on. Until Solomon had hundreds of wives roaming the royal hallways in their curlers and bunny slippers. <laughs> Throughout my life I've heard people say, never say never. And every time something truly unlikely happens, it seems like good advice. But there is at least one sentence I can think of where the word never is absolutely the proper word to use. And it's this. Sin is never a good idea. Even if you can envision how the greater good could be accomplished by just a tiny bending of God's rules, slam on the brakes and go no further. Remind yourself that Solomon's trouble started with a compromise that seemed to serve the greater good. I can just imagine the celebration Solomon and his advisors had when the treaty with Egypt was signed. There must have been a lot of back-slapping and chest-bumping as they raised their glasses in a toast and congratulated themselves. All the while, Satan was smiling because he knew the playing field had just tilted in his favor. I can just imagine him turning to his executive demon and saying, game on, baby. Maybe this will help. Imagine you own a pest control business. A potential client calls and schedules an inspection. After giving the house a once-over, you find a serious cockroach problem, and so you recommend the standard wipe-those-suckers-out treatment. 
But the homeowner says, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to wipe them out. After all, they're God's creatures, too. I just want to keep them away from our food and out of our bedroom. Crazy, right? But wait a minute. Isn't that exactly what some people do with sin? I'm talking about millions of people. Instead of repenting, instead of exterminating, eliminating, or correcting their bad behavior, they just try to manage it. They believe that they can keep their behavior from getting out of hand, if they can keep people from being hurt or offended, if they can keep the status quo from being upset, keep the ugliness under wraps and out of sight, well, they can just hang on to their sin and everything is going to be fine. Solomon is the perfect example. His head first plunge into the world of sin management comes early in his reign. He had just married the Egyptian pharaoh's pagan daughter and he was now taking a hit in the popularity polls. I imagine tongues were wagging. The citizenry was offended because of the presence of a pagan in the palace, which should have been a wake-up call for Solomon. It should have been his cue to repent and to send that young woman packing. Instead, we're going to later see that he chose to manage the situation by building the woman her own quarters in an out-of-the-way place. This is 2 Chronicles 8.11. Solomon moved his wife, Pharaoh's daughter, from the city of David to the new palace he had built for. He said, My wife must not live in King David's palace, for the ark of the Lord has been there, and it is holy ground. Well, it was nice of Solomon to be concerned about holy ground. But only one only wishes that he would have been as concerned about God's holy word. But this is typical of sin managers. Instead of seeing the sin as their problem, they see the awkwardness that the sin creates as the problem and believe, therefore, that they can just find an answer for the awkwardness that will solve the problem. Could there be any clearer sign of seduction? Seriously, you know you're being seduced when the one simple choice of repentance would solve your problem completely but instead you choose to embark on an arduous journey that's going to require you to be constantly juggling and maneuvering to avoid the fault of whatever bad behavior you're trying to protect in other words when we choose sin management over repentance we're choosing stress over peace bondage over freedom and danger over safety as we finish up this morning what does that look like? One day you tell a lie. The next day you have to tell two more lies to make the original lie stand up to the scrutiny of a skeptic. The next day you embellish the original lie in order to win sympathy from someone you'd like to have on your side. The next day you tell another lie in answer to a question that you didn't anticipate. The next day, someone asks you to clarify a detail in your original story, which requires yet another lie. The next day, well, you get the point. Sin management, because it relies so heavily on deception, grows increasingly complex as the days and weeks roll by. One lie leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another, and before long, you've piled up so many lies, 
you can't possibly remember them all. One commentator said, Many a sin manager is hung on the gallows of his own web of lies. A porn addict, for example, will often find solace in going to church and may even be a church leader. He tells himself that God is still his first love and that his porn problem, well, it's a problem for sure, but it certainly doesn't negate his love for God. Or an adulterer may feel ashamed that consoles himself with the notion that in his heart of hearts, God is still number one in his life. Not so fast. Listen to these words from the Apostle John. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. For if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. In the category of cold, hard truth, that one there's a doozy. That means God doesn't share his throne of our hearts with anybody or anything. We either give the throne completely to him or he'll vacate it. You can tell yourself that God becomes, comes first and the sin you're harboring is just a little something you still need to work on. But if you choose, and here's the key word, a lifestyle of sin management over repentance, You've pledged your allegiance to your sin and not to God. The throne of our heart is not a port swing or a love seat. It doesn't offer enough space for two different passions. That is what Jesus meant when he said that no man can serve two masters. It's what Paul was talking about when he challenged us to separate ourselves from the things of the world. And it's the heart of the Lord's message to the church of Laodicea when he said, either be hot or cold, but whatever you do are, don't be lukewarm. If I talk about any of the sermon later, grab me and we can take a little walk at Camp Creek. Let us pray. Lord, it's so easy for my flesh to fool me. It's so easy to convince myself that my situation is different than others and therefore it's okay for me to do what I want. I pray this day that you will open our eyes to who we really are. Not who we project ourselves to be or who we think we are, but who we are, naked and undone apart from you. Let us turn away from any sin that we love and put and keep you on the throne of our lives. For you are the King. And we ask this in the name of our soon coming King, Jesus Christ. Amen. This being the first Sunday of the month, I ask Pastor John to come up for communion. We ask you to please come and get the elements, take them back to your seat, and then we'll take them together.